Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 11th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile. To what extent does the First Amendment protect an individual's right to say what he or she wants, or even to talk back, to a police officer, or to refuse to speak to law enforcement altogether? In theory, the right of free speech guarantees that a citizen can't be arrested for saying something an officer might find offensive or for wishing not to engage in conversation at all. But of course, in practice, things can play out differently. Law enforcement officers sometimes arrest obnoxious individuals they otherwise wouldn't have taken into custody, but for their antagonism or lack of cooperation. But again, speaking your mind, even to a police officer, is a constitutionally protected right. And really, criticizing the government and its agents is sort of at the core of what the First Amendment is all about, and is what Justice Brennan and a majority of the Supreme Court in 1987 said is a principal characteristic distinguishing a free nation from a police state. However, even in a situation where an arrest occurred based substantially or entirely on speech grounds, when an arrestee brings a civil rights claim seeking damages for the violation of his or her First Amendment rights, most federal courts outside of the Ninth Circuit reject such claims, so long as the arresting officer can point to some probable cause, some basis upon which the arrest could be justified, even if the officer in question did not have it in mind and was not affecting the arrest based on it. And there are understandable reasons for this rule. It's hard for a court to get into the head of an officer and determine whether he or she subjectively was motivated by annoyance or animus towards an arrestee's speech, more so than that person's seemingly illegal conduct. So a simple objective rule that bars retaliatory arrest civil rights claims where probable cause exists, so the argument goes, engenders judicial efficiency. It also would keep officers from second-guessing themselves in the heat of the moment, trying to discern just exactly their own motivations for an arrest. But thus far, the Ninth Circuit has remained unconvinced by those arguments. Its rule allows retaliatory arrest claims to go forward, even where probable cause for an arrest exists. In part, the Ninth Circuit's rule strives to prevent a sort of zone of immunity, particularly in extreme cases where police could find pretextual legal bases on which to punish individuals, say, journalists that had been critical of the government. Other circuits, though, have held differently, and likely in the next few weeks the Supreme Court will render a definitive rule on the issue in an appeal over an arrest at an outdoor festival in the Alaskan hinterlands. Today we'll hear two competing viewpoints, one from an amicus supporting the arresting officer in this case, and one from an attorney representing the individual arrested. Lisa Saronin is the executive director of the State and Local Legal Center, filed an amicus brief in favor of the petitioner, the arresting officer, and Tyler Broker is part of the team representing the individual who was arrested, Russell Bartlett. We'll hear from both of them in just a minute, but first let me remind you that, as always, CLE credit is available to listeners of our podcast. Once you finish listening to the show, you can easily find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Finish that, and one California CLE credit can easily be yours. It's also tremendously appreciated if you do go through and complete that as as listeners taking that test and remitting the small corresponding fee helps us continue to provide this podcast outside of our usual paywall. And with that, it's time for our opening briefs. The biggest news from the U.S. Supreme Court this week might have been more about the justices than the cases. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, recovering from cancer surgery, missed oral argument for the first time in her 25 years on the bench. Today, though, according to NPR reporting, the justice has no remaining signs of cancer and will need no additional treatment, and her recovery remains on track. In her absence, the other justices heard five oral arguments, one involving California and a tax fight between the Golden State and Nevada. Aside from settling the long 
simmering dispute between neighboring states, the case will give us an opportunity to gauge New Justice Kavanaugh's regard for stare decisis, as the matter involves a 40-year precedent allowing one state to be hailed into court without its consent in another state, a precedent which California seeks to overturn. And though eight cases were granted cert this afternoon after the justices conferenced, the grants were fairly pedestrian. The most closely watched appeals from our appellate neighborhood regarding injunctions of the DACA program rescission and a ban on certain transgender individuals from military service remain pending. One Ninth Circuit appeal was granted cert. That case asks whether California overtime and wage laws apply to workers on drilling rigs in the Outer Continental Shelf. The High Court also issued two rulings. One saw the first Kavanaugh-authored opinion. He wrote, for a unanimous court holding that, or parties contractually agree to it, arbitrators and not courts are in power to decide whether a dispute is appropriate for arbitration. There have been some dispute among circuits as to whether courts could step in and decide the issue where arguments supporting arbitrability were particularly dubious. And in our High Court, arguments were also heard this week with newly robed Justice Groban atop the bench for the first time. And despite his having no previous judicial experience, he seemed fairly at home, posing a number of questions to attorneys presenting their cases. The court heard six disputes, including one over whether cities can rightly regulate wireless telephone equipment on aesthetic grounds, one raising double jeopardy questions where a jury did not return a first-degree murder verdict and deadlocked on lesser offenses. The court will also decide whether an indigent defendant is entitled to appointed counsel where prosecution appeals an adverse misdemeanor ruling. In the appellate courts, the Ninth Circuit on Tuesday assumed, without deciding, that an unlawful immigrant is entitled to Second Amendment rights, though that notwithstanding, the court held that a federal law prohibiting such immigrants from possessing firearms does withstand intermediate constitutional scrutiny. The circuit held Wednesday that warrantless police searches occurring prior to arrests can be protected by the search incident to a lawful arrest exemption to the Fourth Amendment's general warrant requirement, so long as there existed some probable cause. That is so based in part on Ninth Circuit precedent U.S. v. Smith, even where the subsequent arrest is different from the crime for which that original probable cause existed. Judge Watford there concurred separately to register his belief that Smith should be overruled because it, as Watford wrote, makes the legality of a search dependent entirely upon events that occur after the search has taken place. And in the California Courts of Appeal, a closely filed matter in the Second District Court of Appeal was decided in favor of indigent defendants. There, a unanimous panel ruled that using the criminal justice system to collect court fines without considering an indigent defendant's ability to pay is unconstitutional. Defense advocates had been arguing for some time that the system traps poor defendants in a bottomless cycle of compounding fines. Lisa Saronin is the executive director of the state and local legal center. She filed an amicus brief supporting the officer in a Ninth Circuit appeal soon to be ruled on by the U.S. Supreme Court. It's at the intersection of some weighty equities, namely the First Amendment freedom to criticize government agents, and also the value of effective law enforcement and efficient judicial proceedings. In the case, an attendee of an outdoor festival on the Alaskan Peninsula refused to speak with a police officer, Luis Nieves, who was patrolling the area. Later, the attendee, Russell Bartlett, got into a minor confrontation with another police officer, which Nieves saw. Nieves then arrested Bartlett and told him, I bet you wish you had talked to me now. Alaska charged Bartlett with misdemeanor offenses of disorderly conduct and resisting arrest, but the state eventually dismissed the charges. Bartlett then brought his own lawsuit, arguing that his First Amendment rights were violated because Officer Nieves retaliated against him for his initial refusal to cooperate. A district court dismissed Bartlett's suit, because probable cause existed for the arrest that 
confrontation between Bartlett and the other officer, but the Ninth Circuit reversed, holding that probable cause is not a bar to suits like this. Mr. Ronan believes the Ninth Circuit rule, unique among federal appellate circuits, is wrong, and she's here to tell us why. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, so at the, the top, I'd like to make sure we have the, the issue properly framed, the question presented squarely laid out. The court here is considering whether in a situation where a person gets arrested and thinks they're arrested based really on something they might have said to a law enforcement officer as opposed to a genuine infraction they committed, whether that person can bring a retaliatory arrest claim or whether if there's some probable cause that an arrest could be based on, that such a claim is is sort of precluded. Is that the, the question here? Yes, that's exactly right. Said more technically, I guess, the question is if a police officer has probable cause to arrest someone, but the arrestee believes that they were really arrested for a different reason related to their speech, can they still bring their First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim even though there was probable cause to arrest them? So a simple way of looking at this case from the perspective of a police officer is an officer might say, hey, I have probable cause to arrest you. So it doesn't really matter what you said to me or didn't say for that matter. Um, maybe just sort of to flesh that out a little bit, we could describe sort of the, the typical situation in which these kinds of arrests and then retaliatory arrest claims arise and, and the, the statutory basis for them. So this is a, a 14 U.S.C. 1983 claim. And as you describe it in your brief, the, the situation here is sort of a, a typical type situation where these kind of claims might arise. So tell me about that uh, sort of mine run common uh, scenario. So there's a fair amount of lower court precedent in this area. And while the facts of the cases can vary from case to case, in general, this case provides a very classic situation. So you have a police officer in a very high-stress, fast-moving situation who observes some conduct that merits arrest but wouldn't necessarily require arrest. The officer goes ahead and makes the arrest, but in the course of the arrest, the person that's being arrested engages in some speech or non-speech in this case and says, that's actually the real reason that I was arrested is because I engaged in speech or non-speech. So why that, why this case in particular presents such a sort of typical scenario is that it takes place at Arctic Man, which you can sort of think of as burning man, except in Alaska, rather than like in the desert somewhere, and that the drug of choice is alcohol rather than, you know, something psychedelic. So you have a, you know, like, I guess, eight police officers watching over this party of about 10,000 people. And the, the long and the short of it is that Officer Nieves tried to talk to the, the arrestee in this case, Bartlett, and the arrestee blew him off. And Officer Neves later saw Bartlett get in the face of one of his colleagues. So Officer Neves, thinking, oh, my colleague's in trouble, went over and arrested Bartlett. And in the course of arresting him, Officer Neves said, boy, I bet you wish you would have talked to me now. So, so Bartlett admits, like, you know, I got in your colleague's face. You could arrest me. Um, you had probable cause. I agree with all that. But I think the real reason why you arrested me was first you tried to talk to me and I blew you off. And then, you know, you threw it in my face later on that, you know, that was really why you were annoyed with me. So I realize it sounds a little bit like high school, but that's the scenario that this case presents. The uh, resulting claim that Bartlett brings is based on that uh, notion that he has 
he was in fact arrested for his you know constitutionally protected refusal to speak to the police officer passing by the district court i believe disagrees but the ninth circuit says that he might have a a claim and that even though there is some probable cause here that he could have been arrested on the sort of confrontational situation between Bartlett and, and the other officer that that doesn't all you know by itself preclude the claim that he could vindicate this cause of action if he you know, could show the the true motivation for the arrest it wasn't that PC but it was that uh, Nieves was angry that he hadn't you know spoken to him the first time so you write that that's a unique approach the Ninth Circuit takes among the circuits that have treated this question. Um, could you describe the the sort of the disparate treatment among the circuits or how the Ninth Circuit's approach is different? Yeah, so basically the lower courts have taken one of two positions. One is the Ninth Circuit approach, which the Ninth Circuit stands alone in, which is saying, as you said, you can bring a First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim even if there was probable cause to arrest you, but to win you have to prove that the speech was the but-for causation for why you were arrested. So it couldn't have really been the reason the officer said it had to be your speech. So that's how you can win. Five other circuits, the 11th, the 4th, the 2nd, the 5th, and the 8th, have said there's probable cause to arrest you. The case is over. You can't bring a First Amendment retaliatory claim. You're just out of luck, out of out of court. To listeners, this question might sound sort of familiar. I, I recall as well as, as one that folks thought might get settled last term in um, the case involving Fane Lozman, a uh, sort of public gadfly who had gotten arrested pretty patently because he was just so continually kind of bothering the, the city council where he lived by uh, bringing up lots of different causes at, at meetings and he got arrested at one of those meetings and he, he sued saying, you know, he was arrested based on his, his uh, complaints about the, the city council's behavior and not for the infractions cited by the police. Why, why did that case not get to this question? So Lozman was kind of an incredible case. I can't think of another instance where the court did something like this. They basically said, Fane Lozman can bring his First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim, even though there was probable cause to arrest him, or his First Amendment retaliatory speech case. And the court said, but we're only deciding this case for Fane Lozman. We're not issuing any general principles about who could win or lose or what the standards might be in the more mind-run First Amendment retaliatory arrest case. And the court said, you know, this case, the Lozman case, is really very different than your typical First Amendment retaliatory arrest case. First, you had Lozman, who was suing the city. He wasn't suing the police officer. He was suing the city council that had him arrested. And Lozman also claimed that the city had a policy to retaliate against him, that they had agreed in a closed meeting that some way, somehow, they were going to retaliate against him. And your typical situation, as this, um, as the Nieves case presents, is an officer making a split-set decision where he's or she's never met the person before and would, would have no plot against them. And then Justice Kennedy wrote, you know, in very Justice Kennedy sort of terms, that Fane Lozman's speech was what he called high-value for Senate speech because Lozman was complaining at a city council meeting. He wasn't just, you know, spouting off to a police officer at a bar. So the court said, we're going to let Fane Lozman's case go forward, even though there was probable cause to arrest him, but we're not going to decide what we're going to do in a typical First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim involving facts more like the Nieves case. And in fact... 
you would have attended the oral argument in the Lozen case, and the obvious case was discussed at length, you almost would have thought that maybe it was before the Supreme Court. So that's why the court didn't ultimately get to that question or get to the the big old overriding question. It was because the Lozen case was so unique. Okay, then this case comes along the next term and, and presents, as you say, a more typical situation, a good vehicle for the court to craft a, you know, a rule for the general scenario in which this sort of claim might arise. Uh, how, how would you articulate what you think the rules should be? So our position with the state and local yield center is that the court should adopt a bright line rule. And that bright line rule should be if an officer has probable cause to arrest someone, they're barred from bringing a First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim. So we take a, a hard, bright line. Now, let's get into a few sort of counter arguments against that uh, position. In the case, there's some dispute over the value of some other constitutional principles folks might be familiar with that potentially could be adopted in, in this context. So, for instance, the probable cause, the situation in the in the Fourth Amendment where a seizure is generally justified based on sort of any probable cause, even if subjectively an officer is motivated by maybe some uh, racial bias or something along those lines, uh, that uh, a person subjected to that sort of pernicious type police activity doesn't really have a recourse if there's some probable cause. If you know, their taillight was out or they didn't stop quickly enough at a stop sign, they can be stopped. Um, so that's sort of a familiar principle, but that's in the Fourth Amendment context. And the argument by the respondents here, the other side goes that that isn't really appropriate in the First Amendment context because the First Amendment is just you know, it's different than the Fourth Amendment. And if you do adopt it in the First Amendment context, you're creating a situation where a police officer may be totally intended to arrest someone based on their speech, but you're leaving that person sort of entirely without a remedy. Why do you think that that constitutional principle uh, is okay in both that Fourth and First Amendment context? Well, I think that that is the exact heart of the matter in this case. And your explanation sort of covers why the justices have had such difficulty deciding this issue. On one hand, in a Fourth Amendment claim, all you have to have is probable cause. The subjective intent of the officers don't matter. But a First Amendment claim, probable cause doesn't matter. It's not a consideration at all. And one of the things that Justice Sotomayor talked about in the argument is you know, if we sort of ignore the First Amendment claim here, are we treating the First Amendment as if it has lower status than than other constitutional rights? And so that's a tricky legal morass, and the court kind of has to wade through all that. But our brief, and, and I think the Navi's brief to some degree focused on, you know, some of the policy reasons that are in favor of our, of, of our rule. And they are, for example, that you know, in almost every interaction that a police officer is going to have with someone, there's going to be some amount of speech involved. And so the possibility of one of these First Amendment retaliatory arrest claims coming up with every police interaction is a possibility if, if the bright line rule isn't adopted. A second reality is that police officers um, often have to act quickly and make decisions in stressful situations. And we don't want officers who are second-guessing themselves. Should I arrest this person? 
even though they violated law because I'm worried I'll later have to testify about my reasons as to why I did this. You know, you want officers to act quickly and to not hesitate. And finally, you know, I think we're pretty confident that if these cases went to the jury, almost always the state and local government officials would win. But it's the time and the hassle of having these cases go to the jury that we're trying to avoid. But without a doubt, to your point, the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment are, are somewhat at odds in this case. Taking a step outside of, I guess, the constitutional analog, you say there are some sort of analogous common law torts and some tort principles that support your position in this case, for instance, the tort of malicious prosecution, um, which the the high court dealt with about a decade ago and announced a sort of similar probable cause will bar claims type rule. You know, why do you think that, that those principles are applicable uh, here? Okay, so Hartman versus Moore provides the most analogous precedent in this case. In Hartman, the court held to bring a retaliatory prosecution claim a plaintiff must show there was no probable cause to prosecute. So Neves argues that Hartman should be extended to bar retaliatory arrest claims. And according to Neves, the court imposed a litigation bar in retaliatory prosecution claims because causation is complex in retaliatory prosecution cases. Well, causation is also really complex in retaliatory arrest claims. I mean, why did an officer really arrest someone? What was the officer's real reason? That's a complex question. Now, the other side said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding Hartman versus Moore. In that case, the court barred retaliatory prosecution claims supported by probable cause because prosecutors have absolute immunity. Now, of course, police officers don't have absolute immunity. They only have qualified immunity. So Hartman versus Moore, like I said, provides this, the legal framework for looking at this case or a legal framework. And the court has to decide, you know, do we want to extend it? Do we want to leave it where it is? It was interesting in oral argument that the court spent very little time on Hartman versus Moore, even though, like I said, it's kind of the only law that is there. I think Justice Kagan answered a question about it or responded to something that the Solicitor General's office had, had said about it, but it didn't sort of come up independently. This is one of those cases where I think the court necessarily is going to care as much about the law as they care about the policy and sort of trying to resolve, you know, where they think the policy question, what, where is it most fair to let the policy questions land? So one of those main policy questions is something we've been sort of talking around is, is how courts are able to, to discern the mindset of a, a, an arresting officer to tell whether their subjective intent and in affecting an arrest was based more on, you know, a person just kind of being a loudmouth or, you know, not cooperating with them, not wanting to talk to them, just sort of exercising their free speech rights, or whether or not they were truly motivated motivated by an existing infraction. I guess, do you think that's the maybe the, the main policy argument? How, how would you describe kind of the force of that judicial efficiency type argument? And do you think to any extent it's undercut by claims in the opposing briefs that, you know, more and more often interactions between officers and individuals are, are recorded either by you know, police body cameras or folks passing by that, and, and the use of them could could aid courts in telling you know maybe the, the genuine reason for an arrest. I guess talk to me about that judicial efficiency policy question. So I think the reality is that Justice Sotomayor is right when she says, "Look, if we have a bright line rule, what this means is that if an officer is." breaking up a bar fight and decides to only arrest the person with America, a Make America Great Again hat because 
police officer doesn't like Donald Trump. That officer can then get away with it. And that is the sort of troubling policy argument on the other side. And I think that's why the court is so torn about this case, because they don't like the idea of an officer being able to bring his or her political views or hurt feelings to the job. That's just not what an officer's job is. On the other hand, reality seems to suggest that it is very unusual in these cases that they have facts like the bar fight with the Make America Great Again hat. The facts tend to be much more mundane and less politically driven and less sort of dramatic than I think what the other side thinks. And I think the flip side is a very real issue for a police officer. I mean, the idea of you could arrest someone as a police officer who legitimately did something wrong, but they spoke or they didn't speak to you. And a year later, you could be in a trial explaining exactly why you arrested them. I mean, that's kind of crazy. And it's asking a lot of police officers who are possibly making multiple arrests every day. So those are the tensions that the, that the court has to deal with in the case. And I think the police officer problem presents more of the real problem than, you know, these officers that are acting with these personal motives and these political motives. The case law just doesn't suggest that that is what happens most of the time. A lot of these cases tend to be drunk people mouthing off to police officers. This case wasn't exactly that, but it has sort of a, a tinge of that. As for the body cameras, the idea that the body camera provides an answer because it's going to say what the police officer's motivations are, but police officer's motivations, unless the officer actually speaks them, are only known in their heart. So there's nothing that a body camera is going to show other than a police officer saying, I hate your Make America Great Again hat. I hate the fact that you just hit this guy in the face and I'm going to arrest you. So the, I don't think the cameras are, are a solution to this problem. I wanted to tease out one more thing. You know, we've been describing sort of the difference between an officer arresting someone based on, you know, not liking something they said or their Make America Great hat, or on the other hand, an officer arresting someone because of some conduct that gives rise to probable cause uh, for the arrest. But as to that, it seems like there's also a third scenario that I think is a little more troubling that your rule would allow for, and that's a situation where, say, an officer arrests someone you know, principally for speech-based reasons, but also thinks there's probable cause for, say, they're, you know, drunk and disorderly. Maybe they were mouthing off. Maybe it turns out they weren't actually intoxicated. And so that probable cause didn't actually exist. But then you can go and find some sort of post hoc probable cause, find some other um, basis upon which that arrest might have been okay. But that idea wasn't actually in the officer's mind. You know, is there some question over that, you know, what... That is a real scenario. And in fact, that was one of the issues in the Lozman case. I mean, it, it ends up being sort of a funny, kind of ridiculous story. So Lozman is arrested and there's a trial, you know, like six months later. And the judge asked the city, not once but twice, to go back and find a statute that Lozman had violated. And this really bothered the justices that they that the officers, or when the city had him arrested, that they may not even had a particular statute in mind. Now, fortunately, the Florida code has, you know, 90,000 statutes, and it wasn't impossible to find something that Lozman shouldn't have been doing. But this is something that bothers the court. I don't know how often it comes up in, 
in these run-of-the-mill cases, I mean, you gave an example where, you know, maybe the officer would later learn the person wasn't intoxicated. But I think the reality is, um, you know, officers have a lot of training, a lot of experience. They know what they're looking for. And I'm not sure that would come up that often. But the Lozman case presents a scenario where there were post hoc rationalizations that, like I said, really troubled the court. How should a rule be crafted that, uh, you know, accounts for those edge cases, you know, like, for example, one that comes up is uh, sort of First Amendment speech by publications. I you know, work for a newspaper here, say we publish something negative about the, you know, the mayor of Los Angeles. And then the next day we have some building code vectors come and, and cite the Daily Journal for, I'm sure, you know, a violation or two that could be found. In that situation, it seems like it's obvious enough that uh, it's, you know, the, there might be probable cause for those citations, but the true motivation is retaliatory. So, you know, and that's sort of like the Lozman case. How does a rule like yours not create just sort of a zone of immunity where clear situations, blatant situations can't be remedied? The court doesn't have to pick a bright line rule. It doesn't have to say all the cases in are, are in or all the cases are out. And in fact, an oral argument saw two justices in particular really struggling to come up with something other than a bright line rule. And Justice Sotomayor sort of suggested something similar to what you're saying. And during the argument, she reminded Bartlett of his argument that the court could hold that a plaintiff has to, to, to pass approved probable cause for serious offenses, but not for petty ones. So if it, you know, if you're really going to get arrested for a taillight, you know, being out and a police officer would normally never arrest someone for that, you know, that's going to look suspect. But if you killed someone and mulled off to a police officer, you're still getting arrested no matter whether you mulled off to a police officer or not. So that's sort of one, one way the court could go. It's a good say there's a different rule for serious offenses and there's a different rule for petty offenses. Now, Justice Breyer was the one who worked the very hardest at oral argument trying to say, I'm going to throw out everything in the kitchen sink and see if we can come up with something other than either these cases are in or these cases are out. So he suggested three things. The first thing he suggested was that the officer could lose if there was objective evidence that the officer or that the arrest was pretextual. Another thing he suggested was the officer could lose if no reasonable police officer would have made that arrest except for a bad motive. That might be something like, you, you know, the coming after a building code when all the neighbors are also filing, you know, have the same building code or, you know, that building wasn't supposed to be inspected for 10 more months or, you know, whatever, something like that, even though for a building code violation, you wouldn't be arrested, but you see my point. And the third thing um, Justice Breyer suggested is that the officer would have to know the violation he was uh, arresting for when he made the arrest. Now, um, the United States and the others push back on all of these, you know, kind of saying, you know, that the advantage of right line rules, it gives you a yes or no answer. You're kind of in the same place as if there is no bright line rule. If you're digging into, you know, what kind of evidence was there that there was a pretext and, you know, what would a reasonable police officer do? Then you're just making more and more determinations rather than just having sort of a simple bright line rule. But if the court doesn't want to go yes or no, there are some possibilities in, in the middle that Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor brought up. Do you have a sense from oral argument whether the justices might be sort of converging on a, a middle path of that variety? And also, you know, how do you respond to sort of some of the stark terms that the respondent, the other side's briefs present? For instance, I believe they cited a case from a few decades ago describing how, you know, a very core 
element of the First Amendment in a free state is the ability to criticize actors of the government and agents of the government like police officers, even if you know, parties in these kinds of cases don't tend to always be the most sympathetic. And we probably agree that folks do have the ability to criticize police officers, even if it, you know, makes them fairly unsympathetic. But what are your thoughts on on that idea? And, and I guess how this case might, might end up playing out? Okay, so I'll start with the first question of how I think the case will play out. So I went into the oral argument thinking, probably Officer Nieves is going to win. And the court's going to come up with a bright line rule to just throw these cases out. And the oral argument didn't really dissuade me from that view, but I was a little bit disappointed that the conservatives didn't seem more enthusiastic about it. I think the real question coming out of it was, any of the, were any of the justices sort of per, persuaded by Justice Breyer's sort of middle ground? And no one really expressed any agreement other than possibly Justice Sotomayor. It, well, and I think she'll rule against Officer Nevis anyway. But, you know, it was hard to say. Our argument goes quickly. A lot of issues came up. So I wouldn't write off the court considering one of or a number of Justice Breyer's caveats, but there just didn't seem to be a huge appetite for it. So I still think Officer Nevis will win, but I'm biased, and I think I have to keep that in mind when I make my prediction as well. The only justice that seemed absolutely not in Officer Nevis' court was was Justice Sotomayor, and I think that's sort of that's sort of telling. Now, in terms of the argument that you know people should be able to criticize the police and that you know we don't want the United States becoming a police state, I think again um, it's important to remember that a lot of these cases don't. They're nothing like the Lozman case. They don't involve, you know, interesting political speech. In fact, during the argument, um, one of the questions Justice Alito asked the other side was, what, what value did, you know, Bartlett's speech have here? He was just kind of involved in this petty dispute, which, you know, isn't considered all, the mo- all that important of speech. And, but I think, I mean, the fact that these cases could exist, there are cases that could exist where people are making valuable, valuable speech and they, are, and they wouldn't be able to bring their First Amendment claim. You know, there, there's no doubt that that is problematic. But the reality, again, is that that's just not what happens on the ground. What happens on the ground is just a lot of obnoxious nonsense that it, it's hard to see the, the value of spending resources on litigation and giving someone damages so they can insult a police officer. I have, this is from the Alaska's cert brief in the, in the Lozman case. They have a bunch of cases that came out of the Ninth Circuit. And I'm just going to read one of them to you because it's a very typical case. A man ejected from a professional football game for intoxication and arrested after attempting to re-enter the stadium alleged that his arrest was in retaliation for identifying himself as an off-duty police officer and asking the police to take it easy. I mean, give me a break, right? And I think when the court looks and sees, you know, the lower court's dockets teeming with cases like these, you know, that's going to affect their perspective on where they need to craft the rule. We'll look forward then in the next few weeks to what that rule will be, but we can leave it there for now. Lisa Soronin from the State and Local Legal Center. Thanks very much for being on our podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
Tyler Broker is part of the team representing Russell Bartlett in this appeal. He's written a good bit of First Amendment scholarship and also writes for Above the Law. He, like the Ninth Circuit, says that probable cause should not be a bar to retaliatory arrest suits. He's here to explain his side of the case. Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So listeners will have just heard from Lisa Saronin, who's an amicus on the other side of this case. In in her telling of the case, the equity sort of more prominent are effective law enforcement, efficient use of judicial resources. Tell me, maybe from, from your side of the case, how, how would you frame the issues at play here or just frame the, the case generally? This is a, uh, an important, I mean, every framing of a case is important, but this is particular because the question, you know, we got, the court was, particularly in Lozman, the case that related to this last term, the issue was whether, you know, the flood of litigation. But our, our, our point was clear. The question is not necessarily whether, you know, Mr. Bartlett or the troopers were in the right. It's about the right to seek the truth of who was at fault. And it, it, may, it may sound cliche, but the truth, you know, as we see, is a stubborn and powerful force in trial litigation. And the search for truth represents the underlying basis for the system itself. And we, we feel we were in pursuit of the truth while the other side wants to, you know, significantly bar that pursuit from ever even occurring. Um, just to, to spin that out a little bit further, the idea being that if you have a rule where so long as probable cause exists, these sorts of retaliatory arrest claims can't go forward, then the inquiry stops, which is a, makes the process in, in, in court more efficient, of course, you can get the cases moving a lot more quickly. But then you're saying if you don't look further, you might miss that, in fact, the situation on the ground was a situation where an officer was acting based on animus towards the, uh, an arrestee's speech more so than actions that, that could have merited arrest uh, that were not speech-related. But uh, a rule that prevents that inquiry means you, you don't get to look into that truth. Is that what, what you're describing? Absolutely. From our from our client's perspective, you know, there was there was a wrong that was felt here. And it's a deeply, you know, when when it's a claim that a person in authority is depriving you of a constitutional right, which is what Section 1983 uh, uh, provides a remedy for, you know, it's a it's a deep felt in many you know instances cuts to the kind of core of people. And when you when you deny even the inquiry into that, that that presents a real issue, because then it's you know, you're denying the fundamental, you know, basis for what drives the system. And there are, there are of course, you know, reasonable uh, limits on that. And you don't want, you know, cases that don't have merit, you know, uh, taking up the court's resources. But in our view, you know, this, this bar uh, would block many meritorious cases. And that, that's not, the system should not, you know, that's not something we want the system doing, basically. Okay, let's uh, dig a little bit deeper into the weeds here. You mentioned Section 1983 here, the, the basis for this suit and, and you know, tons of, of similar types suits brought when folks have had their constitutional rights or believe they've had their constitutional rights violated uh, by actors from the government. One critical difference, it seems to me, is that the parties on either side kind of view the the core of 1983 and sort of its, its aegis, what it covers a little bit differently. How, how does your side view that section, and in particular, in, in the brief that you co-authored, make a point to say you know, there's not really much in 1983 that would lend one to, to you know, go looking for the type of rule proposed here, a probable cause type bar. Absolutely. The, the, 
the key tax, you know, the key tax of 1983, as we saw it, was the deprivation of any rights which are secured by the Constitution deserves a remedy. And and that that could not be more clear, and you know, in our opinion. But just as important in what's in the tax is what's not in it. And nothing in the plain language of the text requires, you know, a plaintiff alleging a claim to be burdened by an element of proof that there was no probable cause for the arrest, right? And the common law defenses that are relevant to Section 90, 1983 also do not apply to First Amendment claims specifically. This is, you know, this is because of the history of the First Amendment itself. The court has acknowledged that one of the original intents behind the First Amendment was to repudiate the English common law of liberty of speech. So, but but where the common law is relevant, because it is, you know, a lot of uh, the rights are, you know, on the basis of, of common law. But where that law is relevant, the common law rules reveal that probable cause was only a bar to felony rest. And this is for a good reason. It's implausible for anyone to think that if an officer comes upon you and you're committing a felony, say you're, you know, you're stabbing someone or you know pulling a gun on someone or something like that, then no one's really going to think that the cause of the of the arrest was you, you know, wearing a, you know, a, a sweater that says like, you know, an NWA sweater or something like that that criticizes police. No one's going to think that. But when the criminal charge is a misdemeanor probable cause alone was insufficient in 1871 under the common law to avoid liability. And that 1871 is when Section 1983 was passed by Congress. And I can get into this, you know, more later. I don't get that, but uh, more of a, you know, harbor. But, but, the, but that's the basic statutory requirements. I might pose one sort of counter here that it's also the case there's nothing strictly provided by the Section 1983 statute that says law enforcement officers have qualified immunity to 1983 suits, and yet that's been developed into the doctrine now over a couple of generations. It's a somewhat dubious defense. It's you know it's one that very regularly will dispense with cases at summary judgment and, and has been criticized by certain scholars and questioned by justices here and there as perhaps... Um, you know, not having a ton of, of basis in, in longstanding jurisprudence. But that that's an example of, of something that's not strictly in 1983 that has been, you know, applied to it. it is standing Supreme Court doctor. And so I guess why is that okay? And, you know, maybe not adding another sort of probable cause type bar uh, not okay. Right. There's, yeah, there's a major difference between, you know, what I think the law should be and what it is. And, if you're asking me what I think the law should be, you know, what by the text and and plain meaning understanding of 1983, I don't think that there's an argument for qualified immunity as an add-on to that to that statute. I mean, there have been many calls. I mean, David French at National uh, Review, just off the top of my head, call, have called for an end to the doctrine. And there's there's judges that at least have criticized it. And I talked about this in my Above the Law piece on the case, the Fifth Circuit with Judge Don Willett. And the main issue that he, you know, kind of illustrates is is qualified immunity betrays the fundamental principle of 1983, which is supposed to grant, you know, a remedy for when someone strips you of your of your constitutional rights. But qualified immunity excuses constitutional violations by limiting the statute Congress passed to redress constitutional violations. But that's, you know, that's what that's the whole of what I think it should be. But even if, you know, you look at even if I were to 
you know, stipulate, okay, this is doctrine. Qualified immunity, even as constructed, enables officer protection dependent on good faith. What does this mean? This means like whether the officer was acting in you know, for legitimate purposes. And if a jury found the officer willfully violated a plaintiff's constitutional rights, then qualified immunity has always been traditionally unavailable as a defense. This is precisely why the court crafted the doctrine around whether the constitutional violation was clearly established in Harlow v. Fitzgerald, right? But nothing in the qualified immunity doctrine supports the notion that plaintiffs should be barred from suing officers who willfully violated the First Amendment because, you know, it may even be years later you can identify some petty offense from which there was probable cause to make arrest. I, I don't think that even, you know, in the doctrine as constructed, that that notion is supported. Another key dispute here seems to me whether it's useful to view this particular tort similarly as as other um, sort of comparable type claims that the, the court mm. has previously dealt with and, and laid down some rules for, including about a decade ago in a case where the court said there could be this sort of bar in malicious prosecution claims, so where probable mm. cause existed, folks that that were the victims of malicious prosecution or believe they were could not bring um, those sorts of suits. The petitioners believe that rule could easily be extended to this context. You say it shouldn't. Uh, why not? Yeah, this was what I was getting to, because this is an important point. This is what I was trying to get to with my terrible pun saying more. You know, this is the case you're referring to is Hartman v. Moore. And as the court said in Lozman, you know, v. City of Riviera, that was the case that they were supposed to, you know, that was going to settle this issue, but they decided on much narrower grounds. But in that case, the court said the differences between absolute, you know, prosecutorial immunity, which is, you know, the, the issue in a malicious prosecution tort, and qualified immunity, the difference between them are vast. For one thing, prosecutorial immunity is absolute and qualified immunity is not. Another, and this is, I think, ultimately, you know, the, the problem is the difference in causal complexity between, you know, a, pro a malicious prosecution tort and officer decision making. Under malicious prosecution cases, there's a causal gap, you know, to bridge between the arrest, which it may have only come from the officer's animus and the prosecution, right? The prosecutor could be just given you know, this account of the arrest and have no idea what was going and And so you have to kind of fill in that, that causal gap to, to why, you know, why this is a malicious prosecution when the prosecutor is dependent upon, you know, evidence that's gained from the arrest itself. And whereas, the, you know, that gap exists, but in many cases of retaliatory arrest, these are straightforward cases where the only question is whether the officer intended to punish the plaintiff for the plaintiff's protected speech. There's no causal gap. There's no, it's a, you know, it, it follows, it directly follows from one action to another. And we don't uh, disagree that probable cause can certainly be relevant to this inquiry. And, and it is always, I mean, any, any, any lawyer will tell you this, but it is always difficult to prove another person's intent. And this is how pleading rules can weed out these merit, meritless claims and prevent the flood of litigation, which the court and, you know, the side was trying to, you know, the court was at least very much concerned with the flood of litigation as it was in Lozman. But even where there is probable cause, um, there are offenses for which, you know, police so rarely make arrests 
that the presence of probable cause will have little probative weight. And you can, you know, I, I give an example in Above the Law where you have, um, you have you, let's say, you know, it's all on video, um, but this, this guy jaywalks and he's wearing a Make America Great Again hat. And the cop, you know, with his body cam, he stops him and he says, you know, I, I never really issue a citation for jaywalking, but you're wearing a Make America Great Again hat and I don't like this president. And so, you know, I'm going to cite you. You know, a probable cause exists in that case, but there is no doubt that the base, the fundamental basis of the arrest was retaliation against protected speech. And even in, you know, the petitioners themselves cited cases where individuals were all engaged in the same, you know, presumably illegal behavior, but only the individuals who engaged in protected speech were arrested. And, and, and you know, and these, so it, it can, it doesn't, probable cause can be prohibitive, but it doesn't always, it isn't always. And even if the individuals who are arrested are never prosecuted, the damage to the First Amendment is done and it can be substantial. Especially when such arrests involve like journalists who have been deprived of reporting certain information that may be valuable to all of us. And an amicus brief on our side, filed by news organizations, that you know goes on to explain this point well. It sounds like a lot of your arguments really are are based on the idea that there's something sort of singular about the First Amendment, and there that's important because there are certainly different constitutional contexts where this sort of rule will be familiar to folks that already does exist. So in the Fourth Amendment context, mm-hmm. there is mm-hmm. um, a fairly clear laid down rule that traffic stops, for example, those sorts of seizures are permissible so long as uh, an officer has probable cause, notwithstanding whether or not, in fact, the, the subjective motivation of the officer was you know, some sort of improper motive. And in fact, the the stop was pretextual. Say the officer was motivated by racial bias or something along those lines. You know, that is sort of a constitutional analog. Is what's the the argument for why that rule shouldn't apply here? Because certainly there are similar equities at play in, in terms of um, the desire to have efficient policing and to make it easier on course to decide. You know whether there are meritorious challenges to the officer behavior. And um, why doesn't that rule uh, map onto the First Amendment um, neatly? Well, I think it's quite simple, really, to this is, you know, the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment are designed, you know, to protect very different rights that have very different interests. And if there's probable cause to arrest for any crime, then there's no Fourth Amendment violation that 1983 could remedy. Because that's the, you know, probable cause is the fundamental element of, you know, the Fourth Amendment. However, a retaliatory arrest violates the First Amendment regardless of whether there was probable cause for the arrest. The only question is the remedy. And, and that, this comes, you know, from the examples that I gave where, you know, but this is not to say that probable cause doesn't have any probative weight in First Amendment retaliatory arrest claims. It does. But it, it can also have no none. And that, that the, you know, that the First Amendment interests completely outweigh uh, the probable, the uh, probative weight of the probable cause, and that that's a lot, you know, more difficult to tease apart than a Fourth Amendment case where probable cause is so directly attributable to the right, you know, and and the due process of when you know the state can can provide a, you know whether there should be a remedy to you know, taking away that right under 1983. As you describe some of these scenarios, you know some 
encounters with officers and, and individuals that end up, end up in arrests will sound more or less sort of flagrantly violative of the First Amendment. And the, I guess the, the one argument put forth by the petitioner is that it's you know, fairly difficult for even maybe the law enforcement officer to, to do his job and, and, and to react to, to fast-moving situations where, say, he's confronted by a hostile individual. And so do you really want that officer to, to sort of pause in the heat of the moment and, and really kind of weigh exactly which reason he's arresting a person for? Is it because he's annoyed that the individual's you know, mm-hmm. mouthing off or is mm-hmm. he actually arresting it more so because the individual did something that provides a basis for arrest. So what's your response to that line of argument? I think, you know, respect for police is important for one, because I mean, that that's how policing work is you build a trust between the community and the police. And that's how you can be more effective, you know, be have a more effective law enforcement organization is if you have that trust and that respect. So it's it's very important. But that respect cannot override the very civil liberties the police are sworn to uphold. And and there's a there's a very important point that needs to be said here. When the courts bar meritorious claims, this does not protect law enforcement. It only further erodes law enforcement's standing. When you have a case where, you know, this is clear but somebody can't bring it. That's that's not going to, you know, that's not going to build the trust. That's going to degrade it. And that's not good for anyone. There's a disproportionate, you know, there's a percentage of cases like Mr. Bartlett's Bartlett's, where the reason for the case is you're dealing with, you know, a dishonest police officer. We all know they're there. I I just took a CLE where we had the chief of police and he was very upfront about it. He was like, there are police that are criminals even. And when the evidence is there to show that this is true. It's important that the system listens and and corrects this because this enables, you know, this like enables more trust between police and the public they're supposed to serve. And this creates a more safer environment both for police and the public in general. What what do you think sort of the ideal rule is to to create that situation that that you envision where there's uh, you know trust engendered Absolutely. between um, officers and the public, you know, is, is it where the, an officer is 51%, you know, just slightly more so arresting mm-hmm. for in response to first amendment mm-hmm. speech as opposed to a real, you know, basis, or is it, if it's, you know, all together uh, an arrest in response to first amendment speech, How, I guess what ex- exactly is sort of the ideal rule you would envision? Right. I mean, this in many ways, $64,000 question, right? Like what, but, you know, from our position, we want we advocated for a rule that is based on evidence. Solid evidence will drive these cases and typically has. If you look at, you know, the Ninth Circuit's implementation of the Mount Healthy Doctrine, most arrests, even in a rural place like Alaska, are on audio and video where the issues can be objectively documented. Right. I think it was, you know, in our brief, we said it was like 90 to 95 percent of cases in Alaska of interactions are involved audio or video, and you look at, you know, the facts of this case. Here you have, you know, a confrontation with police out in the middle of nowhere. Anyone who's lived in Alaska, I have, knows, you know, where Arctic Man takes place. And it's it's out there. And even here, you had it on video. And rigorous pleading rules already exist. And if it's as simple as he said, she said, the case won't pass summary judgment. It just won't. 
because you've got to have some form of solid evidence that's going to drive the case past summary judgment. And here in our case, the arrest was caught on tape, and the tape revealed, and this is key, many discrepancies, serious discrepancies from the police account. And for example, let me illustrate. The troopers claimed our client stepped between the trooper and the juvenile the trooper was questioning, right? And the video proved this, this fact to be wrong. He never, our client, Mr. Bartlett, never stepped between the juvenile and, and the trooper. And this was the fundamental basis for, you know, the trooper excusing the confrontation is that he impeded my investigation, you know, was harassing my investigation. He didn't do that. But one, one fact that we thought spoke volumes is that Trooper Wade claimed that the incident started in his affidavit. He claimed the troop, the incident started because Bartlett, Mr. Bartlett, suddenly closed in on him, getting chest to chest and in his face. Again, the video showed that this was not true and that Trooper Waite had to lunge, had to step forward and shove Mr. Bartlett. He had to get into his face. And, you know, it was our position that he, you know, instigated that account and that encounter. And it was these discrepancies that led the lower appellate court to find that, you know, Mr. Bartlett's retaliatory arrest claim presented a genuine issue of fact and that it was for a jury to decide the merit of these discrepancies, you know, and, and to arrive at what, you know, the fundamental basis of the arrest was. Again, it was the search for the truth. And, and, but you're not going to get there unless it's based on evidence. You're not going to get past summary judgment unless it's based on evidence. And probable cause can be evidence. It can be evidence to show, hey, look, you know, there was this guy who was, you know, you walk up getting into a fight. Anybody who sees that and it's objectively documented, no jury, no judge is going to let it get past summary judgment. Mm-hmm. And so um, the rule must be based on evidence. That's the only, and that's the only thing that's ever going to drive these cases. It sounds like maybe a lot of those same arguments would apply then to the, the worry also cited by petitioners that even if a, an officer, you know, has a clear concept of, you know, why he or she is acting in a particular way, it's hard for a court to get into the head of an officer to figure out, you know, the true motives of that officer. And mm-hmm. so it's easier for a court to have an objective rule, like is there or is there not probable cause, as opposed to a subjective rule, like, you know, why is this officer arresting the person? But it sounds like, you know, you, you suggest it more and more now there are recordings, either audio or video, of police encounters, either by the devices the officers might be wearing or just pa- uh, you know, passers-by. Really important because, you know, their, the petitioner's claim was, it was, it was, <laughs> was kind of contradictory because their claim was, if you allow this, there's going to be a flood of litigation. And, you know, our, these, they, uh, to us, they had it backwards. These cases are incredibly difficult to prove. It is incredibly, or, you know, not in every case, but it is usually typically difficult to prove someone else's intent. And that's why you didn't see, even though the Ninth Circuit has had this rule in place for a decade, you didn't see a flood of litigation cases because it's, it's going to be difficult to prove. But in those cases that, you know, where there are a lot of evidence exists, there should be a remedy. Because if not, and you have this meritorious case and you're going to block it because of some petty offense, then that, that's going to... You know, that's going to do damage. And and, and it's... Maybe just a, a question or two about oral argument. It seemed like at least a, a few of the justices, maybe principally Stephen Breyer, were interested in finding something of a, a middle way here. You know, not a complete mm-hmm. PC-based bar, um, but not the opposite either. You know, tell me about some of those potential compromises. I know one involved making sure that the, the PC, the probable cause, cited maybe after an arrest as the true basis would have to be, you know, what the person was 
ended up being charged for? What what compromises do you think seemed to interest the, the court and what which ones might work, I suppose? Well, I think if you saw, if, you know, anyone who read the transcript or hears it, the, the main concern with doing, you know, a middle way type rule is this flood of litigation concern. You know, and they, they, it seems they were trying to find a middle way that'll manage this. But there's another, you know, it should be said there are major issues with that concern itself. That's kind of driving this, that, that, that discussion. For one, I've already touched on this, you know, a probable cause rule would bar meritorious cases, right? Under the government standard, the system would shield the greater harm at the expense of the minuscule fraction. In other words, like when the police retaliate against protected speech, depriving citizens of their rights, that is a far worse crime than a common misdemeanor like jaywalking, right? But I've covered that. But a more important point is the sphere, the sphere of a flood of litigation has always been traditionally overblown. You know, again, like I said before, the you know, Ninth Circuit has had this in place for 10 years. You haven't had that. But also, you look at example, and what we use was Tower versus Glover in the context of a client suing his public defender. Now, if there was ever a case where, you know, a concern of like, you're going to have a flood of litigation, it, it would be, you know, these types of cases for practical reasons. And that was one of the defenses there. Yeah. When, when the court heard that case, it was, oh, if you, you know, allow these cases to proceed, you're going to get a flood of litigation. But the court rejected that defense. And guess what? There was not a flood of litigation. For the same reason I'm saying, these cases, when you're proving someone else's intent, it's difficult to prove. Very difficult. But also, if, you know, trying to find the middle road here, it has to be said that, and this, it may be the most important, it's on Congress to determine if Section 8, 1983, as constructed now, has become too burdensome. Not, not burdensome, not for the court. And, and there's a perfect example of this. Uh, under 1983, you had the Prisoner Litigation Reform Act. Congress perceived that the prisoner, that prisoner litigation was out of control, right, under 1983. So Congress amended 1983 to deal with that problem. The court, and so there, there's a mechanism for this. The court doesn't necessarily, you know, it's supposed to just weigh the probative and evidence, but I, I, get, I get their concern. I'm not trying to dispute that at all, but that, there's a mechanism to change this, and that it's on Congress to do that. But in many, you know, it, it, it would just be, again, I'd have to go back, where if you, there has to be some kind of middle row, but where, you know, but that's the Mount Healthy rule, where probable, probable cause is probative, but it's not dispositive. And I think that, and, and just a rule based on evidence is like, you know, that's the Solomon type splitting the baby, so to speak, you know, kind of kind of line to draw there. Yeah. Last I, I checked, uh, Congress seemed to be at something of an impasse over uh, some fairly weighty <laughs> issues. So we'll, we'll see if they get to 1983 reform anytime soon. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, they have in the past. They have in the yeah, past. It's yeah. not, you know, it's not out of control. But I also think that, you know, the flood of litigation, I mean, if you were going to have it anywhere, you would have it in a tower Glover, you know, very Glover situation where, you know, clients suing their public defenders. I mean, come on. That, that, that's just for all kinds of reasons why that would exist. But it did. And you didn't see, you know, the Ninth Circuit again. They've had this rule and it hasn't because it's just it's these are, you know, they're easy to allege. It's a he said, she said they're easy to allege, but very difficult to get past summary judgment and even pleading because there has to be some kind of evidence in there that supports, you know, supports your argument. You know, one one last one to to leave off. Do you do you have any sort of concluding thoughts on on how I guess the arguments went, or just I guess what 
is at at stake in this case. You know, some of the the briefing and, and yours in particular put it into pretty stark terms that a ruling, you know, against the respondent against your client here you know, nudges the country into towards the direction of something of a police state, a, a country where you know you effectively cannot criticize actors of the government or you know, police officers. Do, do you think the you know the situation is or the slope is that slippery? You know, or is the, the are the consequences potentially that that dire? Well, uh, the court seems to think so. I mean, we, when, in our position there, that comes from Supreme Court case City of Houston v. Hill, where they said the freedom of individuals verbally to oppose or challenge police action without thereby risking arrest is one of the principal characteristics by which we distinguish a free nation from a police state. And that, that this is why criticism of police is placed by the court in the highest hierarchy of First Amendment values and why Mr. Bartlett's expression falls within this category. He was criticizing the police investigation on what they were doing. And so if you can't, you know, you can't do that. And, and, you know, I cited my above the law piece where, you know, justice on the Supreme Court talked about, you know, where you have a situation where, you know, those in power are, you know, picking the person and searching the law books to find the crime that they can throw at them. That's when, you know, the tyranny is at its highest reach. And where where uh, your protected expression isn't really protected, and um, and so I think it's it's a very it's a concern. It should be a concern to the court, and they have expressed it as a concern. Okay, well we'll see how they come down on it uh, here, probably in the next few yeah. weeks. Uh, but for now, we'll leave it there. Tyler Broker, thanks very much for being on our podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. And that's our show for January 11th, 2019, second show of the new year. Thanks very much for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks one more time to both of my guests, Lisa Sironen and Tyler Broker. It's also to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. And thank you for tuning in. It is tremendously appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of CLE credit can easily be yours. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Complete that in one Hour of California CLA credit can be yours. Also, don't forget to find us in the various podcast streaming avenues where we are now available, mainly the iTunes library and the podcast app. It's helpful for folks to find the show. If you do, look for us there by searching Weekly Appellate Report and either rating us, reviewing us, uh, or sharing a link to the show. I'm Brian Cardell. Before speaking to you next Friday, have a great week.